Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Melissa Kwan, founder and CEO of eWebinar, a platform helping companies scale demos, lead gen, and customer success by automating webinars with video. Welcome to the podcast, Melissa. Thanks for having me. So I have to start in email. You told me that your first job ever was actually in scrap metal trading. And I was extremely curious, how how did that come about? Yeah. So actually my first job ever was selling life insurance when I was 19. And one of my colleagues, who was also a friend, I guess her family was in scrap metal. And somehow she was like, oh, do you want to help me do this thing? And I guess I had always done like odd jobs here and there. Um, I was always curious about like doing stuff on the side. I I don't have an entrepreneurial background or family, but I was always curious to learn other things. So I just kind of helped her a little bit. Um, Never actually saw a transaction through. Like, I guess they kind of worked as like a middle agency. Honestly, to this day, I have no idea if that's a real business. But it was like, you know, you're 19. It seems like a real business. And I had an email and people would say, oh, I want... I, I want to say like a hundred tons of HMS one and two or whatever. And you would just try to look know for a that supplier. Is. Yeah. You would look for a supplier that had that. And somehow there's like another side of people that said, yeah, I have this. But after a few years, I'm like, wait, does that even exist? Like hundreds of tons of scrap metal. And does it get traded through email through these kids? Like, I, I don't know. So, um, but I, when I read your podcast description, I'm like, oh, I was in scrap metal. <laughs> That is so funny. Life insurance is also another business I fundamentally don't understand. I actually have two friends who started a more like millennial focused permanent life insurance business. And to this day, I can't articulate exactly what they do. Yeah. It's one of those like necessary evils though, right? Like, I mean, because of that, I have life insurance and health insurance policies that I pay almost nothing for because I bought them when I was 19. And I'm a believer of insurance policies, but I'm I'm also kind of like, I don't know. Like when you want to claim the insurance, do you actually get the money? (laughs) I have found in my experience, no. I don't know anything about that, but my car insurance, our car got broken into actually about two months ago. And it's more of a design flaw. You could break the back window and get into the trunk and guess how much the insurance paid? Zero. Yeah. I mean, I've had like similar situations with like dental insurance and things like that, but you know, it's, a, it's kind of an interesting foray into, into the sales career because I, I guess that was my first real job and, and first, um, exposure into what selling means. Um, and then that kind of like launched me into like a whole different slew of like odd jobs after that. Well, your background is interesting and I would love to kind of hear a little bit of how you kind of found your way to where you are today. And you said, you know, you didn't come from an entrepreneurial family, but it looks like you've mostly done entrepreneurial things. So how did that start? Yeah, I I guess I, I've never really been an entrepreneur, like, you know, uh, as other, as I guess other, other friends, you know, with entrepreneur parents, but I guess I was always entrepreneurial. 
if that makes sense, right? Like in school, I would make these origami cranes and try to sell them to my friends for like 25 cents and then use that to like buy a popsicle. Um, and you know, when you're young, you don't, you don't think, oh, I'm starting a business. You just think I'm making these cranes that no one's ever seen before because I immigrated from Asia and I'm selling them in, in school. Um, and I guess like, I, I always had, like, I always had jobs, so I didn't last very long. Um, after university, my first real job, I guess I was selling real estate. Um, and while that's not like your own business per se, you're kind of a consultant. So, um, in a way I was, I was also self-employed. Um, and then eventually I went to work for, um, SAP and that was my last job that I actually quit because I had, had all these odd jobs up to that point. I'm like, okay, if one day I want to have a company, I'm going to have to work for a structured company and know how that works. I worked for them for like just under a year before I was like, oh, I actually hate working for companies. <laughs> and so I guess I was all, even though I was in smaller jobs in the past, um, it wasn't very structured. Like I was, I was kind of like, I was allowed to be an entrepreneur inside a, inside a smaller company. So it always like tampered with different things and wanted to, to come up with my own, my own creative ideas inside someone else's company. But it wasn't until I quit SAP that I was like, okay, I think I'm going to do my own thing. Um, and that was like over 12 years ago. And, and there was no tech stars or like, there was no accelerator, like the concept of that. I was also living in Vancouver. There was, there was just meetup.com. I don't know if you guys remember that. Um, and people would get together in a restaurant and start talking about their ideas. Um, and I just wanted to start something on my own. I didn't know that if you started a tech company on your own, or, you know, if you had a tech business, I didn't know it would be called a startup. I just wanted to start something in technology. So I quit SAP and I was like, okay, I'm going to build something with code. Like I literally thought code was one language and there was one <laughs> way to get to a final outcome. So I just talked to a bunch of people that I knew could code. And I had an idea for an events platform, kind of like a Craigslist. Um, and at the time I was like, oh yeah, if I build it, they will come. Right. Um, that didn't happen. So I played with like a bunch of different ideas until I came up with one that like people would pay for. And that became my first company, uh, which was, um, it was like an iPad interactive brochure for like selling a building. So oh, instead of like walking into a sales center and getting like a paper brochure, we were the iPad interactive brochure and you could also log in and it would be like a sales tool. And back then the iPad had been around for like two years or, or something like that. So it was kind of a cool, like neat app, um, did that for four years and then realized that turned into an agency model where we were building apps for like 20 different people. And it just wasn't, it wasn't a great business, right? Anyone that's built an agency would realize you're chasing the client and then you're chasing the invoice. So everyone wants everything on time and then they never want to pay you. So I was doing that <laughs> for four years. And then I was like, okay, I have to build a product that we own something that we offer everyone else. So the first company morphed into the second company, which became an iPad open house check-in. So ah walk into an open house instead of signing it on a piece of paper, we were the iPad check-in for that. Ran that for, for residential five years. or for commercial? Yeah, yeah residential. And uh, we ran that for five years. Uh, that company was acquired in 2019. Um, and then after that company was acquired two months later, I started eWebinar. Well, let's talk a little bit about the webinar space in general. I feel like this audience probably has either been on a webinar or seen a webinar, but what's the difference between just like a normal video conference and a webinar from a technology perspective? Yeah. So, um, 
I mean, a, a webinar by nature is is technology based, right? It's it's an online, like it's a web seminar. That's where that's where the word came from. But I think when I people, did not know that. Yeah, so I think when people think about webinars, like it's been around for twenty years. I think like I want to say like go to webinar was probably one of the first, if not the first. Yeah. Um, but then when they think about webinars, they think like a live webinar, Zoom that happens as a one time event, right? But by nature, like it's it's just not scalable. I think every business after 2020 is leveraging webinars or live meetings in some way, right? There's billions of dollars being poured into live broadcasts, even Facebook, Instagram, like all these guys are pouring money into, into meeting people virtually. But the problem with that is even though the met, that method of communication is really effective, it's just not scalable because you have to be there physically to deliver that. So even though the content is really effective and it's, it's a great way to meet someone in your business, you can't do that every hour of your life. So what's the next step of that is how do you make that scalable? And, and that's what eWebinar is. We turn any video into a webinar that you can set on a recurring schedule. So you can run a thousand webinars without actually being there um, to run it live. And use cases are things like demos, onboarding, trainings, customer education, and things like that. Well, when I was first looking at your website, it just resonated so much with me because the first startup I was working at after college, at some point I was running eight concurrent webinars and we had broken it up by different vertical. We had done more of like a product overview, a security overview for different parts of the funnel, different buyers. And at the beginning, we were just running these constantly. And to your point, it was just completely unscalable. And so I had found a solution that was called Simulive. It was, the company was on 24, which is one of these super old legacy ones. And we had been able to make it look and seem like it was real. You could actually register for the date and time and show up. And one of the hacks that we did, which I liked, and I'm curious to know if this is a component of eWebinar, we would actually roll over to live Q&A because we found that when people actually engaged in the Q&A piece, they, um, those were the more qualified people. And then, you know, some of them, when we didn't do that, what we would do is we faked it. We said like, oh, this question, we'll answer it. We just answered the most common questions. And then we'd said, hey, sorry, we ran out of time. We didn't get to all the questions. We'll follow up personally, which was yeah. kind of a fun hack too. Yeah. I mean, I think there were like kind of hackish ways of doing that in the past. And and On24 has been around for a long time. Um, you know, they're they're still around and, and it's, a, it's a pretty big company now. Um don't want to say anything about them, but for us, what we did with the communication piece, because the thing is like when people, why do people like webinars? They want to go there and be able to engage with a host, right? That's what makes a webinar so much more valuable than a video where you can like a YouTube video, for example, where you can just go there, hit play, hit pause, and then you bounce, right? So what we did was we looked at how people communicate today, which is asynchronously, right? Every single day we communicate with our friends and family through text. I can text you now and maybe I'll respond right now or two hours later. We communicate through email. We communicate through Zendesk, Intercom. All of that is asynchronous. So when I was conceptualizing this, I was like, well, why can't the communication with webinars also be asynchronous? If the webinar is based on a video, then I should be able to hop into Respond Live if I happen to be there. But if this webinar is running 24 hours, I should be able to respond to you through email if you're not there. And it's the exact same way that I communicate with you through your support chat. So what we did was we basically just took what works today, which is like intercom style support chat, and we attached it onto eWebinar. And that's how attendees would communicate with the host. If they had a question, they could ask 
Um, they could ask it in real time. If you happen to be in front of your computer or your phone, you could respond. But if not, say you see the question when you wake up in the morning, uh, then you could respond and your attendee would get that through email. Interesting. How I have always conceptualized why people do webinars and not just post videos is for some reason, the industry has decided that you're allowed to gate a webinar, but you're not allowed <laughs> to gate a video. Meaning I can go and ask you for 10 pieces of information to sign up for my live or not live webinar. But if I posted a 20 minute video, I for some reason can't gate that. Have you seen that as well? Yeah, I think like the more frustrating thing that I'm seeing is, you know, people like you could go to a website that says webinars, like let's say you click on the menu webinars. And it's like, sign up for on-demand webinar, but it's literally just like 20 gated landing pages. And then when you fill, when you fill everything in, you unlock a video. Like that is kind of infuriating to me because that's just a video. Call it a video. Don't call it a webinar. A webinar by nature starts at a certain time. There's ability, ability to engage. Um, maybe you have some polls, question resources, right? Like it's, it's more of a two-way participatory experience, whereas a video is a one-way consumption. So I think people are using on-demand webinar and gated videos as kind of synonymous where it's a bit of a cheat, like it's a bit of a lie, right? So that's what I'm seeing, you know, more of. Um, but yeah, like I think webinars by nature has, has um, a registration form, right? It, it allow like it, it makes the attendee gives you something before you give something back. And that's, I think the value of it for a business. Um, but a webinar also has a lot of different components, right? It starts at a certain time. You have reminder emails, you have follow-up emails. Um, you've got things like questions, polls, resources that uh, gets delivered throughout the experience. Um, and then of course that chat component. So um, it is so much more than a video, even though um, something like a webinar starts, you know, from a video. Well, to your point of it being kind of a cheat, I will tell you my best performing acquisition campaign of all time was I realized that this whole concept of a webinar allowed me to ask people for information, but people are very lazy and they also don't want to sit through an hour long webinar. So I took a product demo. I condensed it down into five minutes. I think it was either eight minutes or five minutes. And I called it the five minute webinar. And I asked people for their information and they were happy to give it to me, but they were just getting a five minute product demo. But man, it's like this weird psychological play where they hear webinar, they think they're going to get a ton more value than if it was like, you know, hosted video on Vimeo or YouTube. Yeah. I mean, it's the psychology is really everything, right? Like if I, if I say, Oh, Hey, watch this video. Like it's my, on my knowledge base, your idea is why well, I can just do it later. Right. Like, why do I have to do it now? But when I give you a registration page and you get to choose a time and then you get a, you get an email with a calendar invite and it actually blocks that time you are psychologically more committed to watching that. Like the industry average um, for attendance rate for webinars is like sub 25%, yeah. but the attendance rate for e all e-webinar customers across the board consistently every single month is 65%. Wow. I mean, that's Why, why that's do you think crazy. that is? It's recurring, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so for one-time event, it's like next Tuesday at 11. But isn't it crazy that to think about how if we're a consumer, we want to watch a video like a lifestyle video or a movie, we expect to be able to go to Netflix, Disney TV or whatever and press play. Like I want to watch it right now. But for some reason, when we deliver B2B content, we want to control the schedule. Like if I told you, Elaine, you can only watch your favorite show next Tuesday at 11. I mean, that would never fly. 
But for some that's reason- That's how it used to be. Yeah, that's how it used to be, but it would never fly anymore. It hasn't been there for, it hasn't been like that for a decade. But yeah. how come for some reason when we're delivering B2B content, we're like, no, you have to follow my schedule. So it doesn't actually make sense to me. And that's why we created this product to more closely align consumer expectations in their everyday lives with how they consume business content. And I truly believe that the businesses that understand how consumers actually want to consume video content can better align how they deliver that to their customers. Do you have any data on, you know, most people today, the, even if it's truly live, they'll do a webinar and then they'll post it on demand and mm -hmm. say, hey, sorry, we missed you. Here's the video or they'll send it out over email. What percentage, I have a guess, but what percentage of people ever actually consume the content post event, like on demand or via email? You know, I have no idea. Like I, there's no stat on that, but I could just tell you that my inbox is a replay graveyard. Oh, my <laughs> guess was 0%. My guess was literally sub 5%. And that's the thing. Like everyone that's seen a replay, you know, the video quality is low. There's housekeeping you don't care about. There's all these people interrupting. There's a huge Q&A that isn't really relevant to you. And that's actually the beauty of having an evergreen webinar is you can make that product demo that you just talked about so much tighter. The video quality is really high because you're just recording it on Loom or Descript or whatever it might be on your screen. And it's just so much more relevant to the person that's actually consuming it because nobody else is interrupting. My theory on this too is comes back to the whole psychological component is when I have a time block on my calendar, I've already dedicated that time to watching this content. And mm -hmm. if I don't have it on my calendar and I get a follow-up email or see something on demand that's like an hour, I don't have that time block carved out. And therefore, yeah. I'm never going to get to it. And I feel like that's how people live today. It's If it's not on my calendar, it doesn't exist. And I think yeah. that that is cannibalizing the anything on demand space. I mean, actually, one of the tricks that I like to use on my like demo registration pages or my webinar registration pages is I like to post how long it is. Like, it's no secret. Like, I want people to know this is 15 minutes or this is 25 minutes because I also want to give them the choice. Like, if you discover this and you happen to have 15 minutes right now, I want you to watch it right now. So a lot of people are like, oh, let's just get them into the content first. It's like, no, people just set the expectation properly and give people autonomy to choose. Do you want to watch it right now or tomorrow or next week? Is there a time that's like the best performing in terms of length for a webinar? You know, I came into this thinking shorter is better. And, you know, because people always say shorter is better. Hey, website content, shorter is better. But I'm now seeing our customers have webinars upwards of like an hour and a half, two hours. And these could be like workshops, right? Or um, like delivering a how-to and then maybe there's an upsell at the end. And what I realize is the engagement of the webinar is probably like, 60% delivery of the host. Like how engaging are, are you? Your energy level, how good of a presenter are you? Um, how valuable is the content? And then the rest would be like, how valuable is the content for me? Like, are you dragging this on or is it like action packed? So I no longer think it's the length of the webinar as long as it's high energy, it's fun, it's valuable. It actually doesn't matter how long it is. Just it, it needs to be long enough to get somebody to your CTA. Like that's how long it should be. I feel like there's even analogies there with the podcast space. Originally, there was this whole thesis of, you know, keep them short, which I tend to do for my own purposes. But there are some that are now hour, two hours, 
I have two friends that do a, a podcast together where they go and look under the hood of business acquisitions or IPOs or things like that. And their last one was Amazon, which was four and a half hours. Oh, and that's wow. an audiobook. But I think to your point, if the delivery is great and if the content is so spot on with what the um, the listeners or the audience wants to hear, it you know people have tolerance. But isn't that what the two times buttons created for? Like I only consume content in two times. Like sometimes Agreed. I have to slow it down because it sounds like like a helium balloon, but like I mostly consume my content in two times and I just get so much more of it. Um, and if if there's bits and pieces that don't aren't, aren't that relevant to me, I can just skip like 15 seconds. Who um what is your average customer look like? Yeah. So my average customer, small, medium-sized businesses um, in two major functions. So sales and marketing like lead gen or post-sales customer success. So you can imagine like all of your SaaS onboarding and training that you never want to do twice, that someone is probably doing once a week, we replace all of those. All those top of the funnel demos that like people don't show up for that, you know, your salespeople hate doing, we basically automate those. Uh, whether your CTA is like sign up at the end or book a call with my team, um, we can also automate those on your website. Do you use eWebinar as your own acquisition hack? Of course. Like this is actually, you know what's so funny? People are like, oh, you built this because you love webinars. No, I built this because I absolutely hate running webinars. There is nothing that I hate more than running a repeat, like a repeated demo, um, especially to people that may not be qualified to buy right now. Like there's nothing more disheartening than going on to demo and knowing within the thir first 30 seconds that they're not your customer, but you know, you still have to sit through that for, for 20 minutes. That was my life for five years. And I used to run all this repetitive onboarding and training in my previous company, which was enterprise SaaS. Sometimes I would do like, to your point, seven or eight of them back to back. And I would not have any more energy or mind share to do anything else. So this product was actually dreamt up in my previous company. And when that was sold, I'm like, I, I have to solve this problem. Like I'm not the only one living with this. So ironically, like if you look at all of our competitors, we're the only company that use our product to sell our product. So like, why would you not use it to sell your product, right? Like your entire demo should be delivered through this. Totally. Uh, especially given the nature of your business, which is a B2B enterprise software company. If um, Okay. So if I'm an enterprise software company and I'm running webinars today, looking for a solution, how best to use webinars as an acquisition and conversion channel or onboarding channel? Like what is what are the best practices that you would give to co companies today? I mean, I would say like, number one, you have to get rid of the misconception that live is better. Like how is live better when your customer can't even make that time? Like we have a lot of attendees and I, and, and like our Slack channel just goes off because we have a channel that basically shows every attendee that joins our system. It, it never shuts down. Like every minute of every day, someone is joining someone's webinar, which means that people are watching this at nighttime when your team's not working. They're watching this on evenings when they actually have time and your team's not working. So I think when people say, oh, live is better, I have to put someone on it because it, it seems more authentic, it seems more genuine. People are not coming to your company because they're watching you, Elaine, deliver a demo or deliver an onboarding. They're just coming here to get the content so they can learn how to use your system. If they want the content, just give it to them. And if you, if you remove that misconception that live is better, you would then try something new and say, hey, what if I were to automate this and make this available 
What if I can onboard 500 people a month instead of 50? How would that change my business? So I would encourage people to challenge what they know today and enter a world where 24-7 onboarding and 24-7 uh, training is possible. And think about how that would impact your business in a positive way. I guess just to play devil's advocate, though, how is that different than me embedding videos in Zendesk or on my website or in the places where customers would go to get that content? It's back to that psychology, right? Are they going to do it or not? Like it's it's getting it's getting someone committed. It's getting that calendar block in their like in their calendar, knowing that they're going to show up. And why do people show up? Because webinars are just more engaging. I can go there and ask questions, but I can't go to a YouTube video or a Zendesk, like embedded knowledge base and go ask a question. Like people just treat a web page differently. <laughs> like you can still do that. And I, and I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's about being present on many different channels and making sure that you're staying in front of your customer, regardless of how they decide to... Uh, to get that content, to engage with that content. But know that if you're delivering it as a webinar, because of that communication channel, it allows you to start building a relationship with your customer that just that just can't happen through a one-sided consumption video. Makes sense. You seem like a person who's kind of constantly seeing challenges or pain points. If you weren't working on this, what other things would you be working on? What other pain points have you come across? Man, I got to tell you, the only reason I started this was because I did not sell my previous startup for like retirement level money. <laughs> so uh, if, I, if I was not doing this, uh, hopefully I would be retired. Uh, but actually, there's one thing that I would love to work on. And hopefully it's like a passion project after this is I think a lot about how there's so many things in our lives that teach us how to live. But there's almost nothing, at least that we're exposed to at, at this age, that teaches us how to die. Hmm. And I think a lot about how, like, how we could package our legacy um, because we now have the technology to do that. And I would love for that to be my next project. Um, hopefully, I don't need the money for it because um, I can actually have fun doing it. But I think that would be like my next thing. That was actually an area that I spent a bunch of time in is this, I mean, end of life tech, death tech, um, death doulas, things like that. A lot of things related to crypto and the legacy. So I feel like that is definitely a space that could use a little bit more tech and is, you know, everybody dies. So it's something that affects 100% of the population. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it would be like the longest SaaS model of like any exactly. products. <laughs> yeah, you got you to gotta find some uh, adjacencies there for a while. Nice. Well, the last question I love to ask all my guests is, has there been any piece of advice or words of wisdom you've been given in your life or career that you really kind of live by today? Yeah, I actually just posted about this yesterday. One of the best advice that I got was don't marry your idea. And I will mm. tell you a story. So I just quit SAP and I was, I guess I was always very stubborn as a kid. Um, but you know, like you, you're at an age, like when you're young, you think, you know, everything. So when I quit SAP, I'm like, I'm super smart. I know everything. I have all these business ideas. I'm, I'm just going to do them. And then I'm going to make a lot of money. Like I actually thought that. And so I remember like telling one of my friends who was like a fairly successful entrepreneur at the time, like I was in his office and I was telling him this idea that I was going to do. I don't even remember what it was, but you know, he was like poking holes in it. And I was like ferociously defending it. 
And, you know, you could tell he was like a little bit defeated and he like didn't really want to talk to me anymore. And he walked me out of his office and he, he looked at me and he said, Melissa, don't marry your idea. <laughs> and at that moment, it just kind of hit me. And that piece of advice changed me forever. Like there was actually no reason why I should have been defending it the way that I did. I just felt like I needed to. I felt like I needed to protect my baby, having zero experience in building a company at that point, by the way. And so now I think I, I think one of the hardest things as a founder is to remain open-minded, but also have conviction in your idea. But now um, remembering that advice, I still ask myself, what if I'm wrong? So I still take a step back no matter what and say, okay, like that makes sense, but like, what if I'm wrong? Um, so I, I find that like at least asking yourself that allows you to be more cautiously optimistic than just like purely optimistic. It's such a good piece of advice, especially, you know, being in the world of early stage investing. I think what all of us believe is we invest in people and markets, but there is a 90 plus percent chance that the product today of a you know pre-seed seed stage company will not be the product in two years. So you really can't get obsessed with whatever they're building today. And, you know, the good founders will also recognize that and pivot as necessary. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It was lovely to speak with you and getting to hear a little bit more about your journey in eWebinar. If people want to learn more, where should they go? Uh, if you want to connect with me, the best place is LinkedIn. Um, my name is Melissa Kwan, K-W-A-N. And if you're curious about eWebinar and how you can automate your webinars so you can never, so you never have to do them twice again, um, just check out eWebinar.com. It's exactly as it's spelled or awesome. exactly as it sounds. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Melissa. Thanks so much.